As we turn to the scripture, we'll be looking this morning at Matthew 11, verses 16 to 19. If you use a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 816. It's the Lord's word to us this morning. Jesus is speaking, and Matthew quotes him. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand together and worship. Amen. And as you're seated, if you would pray again with me. Lord, we come to this time now to meditate together on your word, aware that we are asking for you to do what only you can do, which is to open both our minds and our hearts. That we would hear the gospel, we would be changed by it. We freely confess we can't change our own hearts, but we know you can. So would you meet with us in these moments we have? In Jesus' name, amen. So, I remember fairly distinctly still the stereo wars on my freshman hall in college. Now, if you're about under 30, I may need to do some explaining. There was a time in human history where everybody in the room had to listen to the same song. Um, And we rolled into college with our stereos, which we were very proud of, and with our music taste, which we were very proud of. And it didn't take long then before this became a competition. And so on my freshman hall, a couple doors down, you had my friends who were the classic rock guys. They didn't even really care if it was very good classic rock as long as it was loud. Now down and across from then, you had the country music guys, and they were trying to push the twang. Just past the fire door, you had my friend who was a classical music only guy. And interestingly, by the way, he usually won. Because there's not much that can cut through a piercing soprano at full blast. And so the hall became this cacophony of competing songs. Everybody fighting to impose their musical will on the rest of our freshman hall. Now, it's actually an apt analogy for the passage that we looked at this morning. Because there are really three songs in this passage. Each of them fighting to be the one to which we listen. One of them is explicit, two of them are implicit. And the point of these verses from Matthew 11, in fact, is that Jesus' song is the right one. And his song says, we're friends with sinners. That Jesus' song is the right one, and his song says, we're friends with sinners. So, we'll look at that in three songs. Our song, Jesus' song, and John's song. So, starting with our song, it's really what you see in verses 16 and 17. And the first thing we've got to realize about our song is that Jesus says it's childish. Jesus says it's a childish song. It's a kid move. Now, that takes a little understanding. And so look, if you would, with me at the text. Um, It should be pretty obvious that Jesus isn't real happy with the reception he's getting here. But what exactly is he saying? 
Well, verses 16 and 17. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. What's the point of this little ditty that Jesus puts in their mouths? Well, their culture, like most, was a very musical culture. And so young kids would have grown up going to weddings where you played the pipes and you played the flutes and everyone danced in celebration. And they would have grown up going to funerals where you played a slow, deep dirge and everyone mourned together. And being kids, they'd absorb both of these and they did what kids do when they play, which is they play acted. They acted like they're the parents. And so kids playing together would say, we're going to play wedding. We're going to play funeral. And have you ever watched, say, two kids playing together? Usually and pretty quickly, one or the other decides to try to boss the other one around. And so they say, we're going to play Legos. Never mind if the other one wants to play Legos or not. And this lasts for a little while, but before long, the bossee gets kind of sick of it. And so they just start ignoring the kid who's bossing him around. And then you start hearing things like, I said we're going to play Legos, why aren't you helping? I said we're going to do the sit and spin, why aren't you? And that's just a modern version of the same song. We said dance, but you didn't dance. We said mourn, but you didn't mourn. Jesus says, this is, this is the way kids play with each other. And you have to, with kids, get down and explain to the boss, sir, look, you know what? He doesn't have to play with you if he doesn't want to play what you want to play. Jesus says this generation is kind of like that kid. The kid who wants to be in charge and he or she is kind of petulant and bossy and wants to insist that everything be done their way on their time. In other words, this generation wants God to dance to their tune. And suddenly you realize that's kind of like us, isn't it? I'm pretty sure I want God to do these things for me on this schedule in this way and this is how my life ought to come out so would you get to it, God? And suddenly we realize our song's kind of childish. That's the name Jesus gives to it. He says, really? Is that how you think it works to go back and forth with God? But this is what they want. They want God to dance to their tune. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. That's not the way the game's played. Now, let's try to get a little deeper then. What tune is it they want Jesus to dance to? Well, to answer that question, we need to say... Who is it that he's talking to here in Matthew 11? And that's actually a little harder to figure out in chapter 11 than it is in a lot of the Gospels. Often you'll have something like the Pharisees were standing there and Jesus said. Or Jesus spoke to the scribes and Sadducees and said this. In Matthew 11, the closest we have is verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd. Seems to be a mixed audience. What would a crowd, a mixed audience, have been like at that time? Well, let's sort of try to get in our heads the different groups that would have been in this crowd. They live in in Jerusalem and Judea under Roman occupation. Now, the Romans have conquered the land to do what you usually do when you conquer a land, which is to pull as much tax money as you can out of it. And so they live in a very difficult economic situation. People are barely getting by because anything extra the Romans are taking. And predictably, in this kind of situation, you can see certain types of patterns of behavior emerging. One set of people in response to this crushing economic situation of the Roman occupation has just given up. 
They have maybe turned to drink to just get themselves so blitzed that they can't feel the pain anymore. Or they are in such a destitute situation, maybe the men of the family have died, maybe they've left, that they have no way to support themselves and they've turned to prostitution. Or they have given up in other ways and just thrown themselves into a sinful lifestyle to maybe dull the pain for a little while. Now their society had a name for that whole set of people. They called them the sinners. People who've just given up and embraced sin. Now, in, in modern metropolitan D.C., you can figure this. You can see the analog here on various street corners in various situations. People that we work with in different contexts. This one group gave up. They became known as the sinners. <clears throat> now, a second group of people didn't like that answer at all. And they were real pragmatists. They saw the way the world works and they said, well, if the Romans rule the roost... The way to make your way in this world is to cozy up to the Romans a little bit. So these people, by nurturing a relationship with the Roman authorities, had become sort of the civic leaders. They ran the temple complex. They ran Jerusalem. They had authority in any number of ways because they were the Romans' ways of keeping things from exploding. These civic leaders were called Sadducees. And they owed their positions largely to the will of the Romans. Today, you can imagine, you know, the downtown people would be leading the National Gallery of Art or head of a major university, GW or American. They'd be running the FTC. They'd be in City Hall. There'd be a number of roles that you had because you were in right with the person leading the government. You'd think people would hate them for that, but they didn't because there's somebody else they hated more. The Romans appointed in each region a tax collector. And the way the Romans worked with the tax collector is he was a local, and they said, you owe us this much money each year at this time. And frankly, they didn't care very much how he got it. And so it's a situation that was rife for abuse, and it was very much abused. Nothing stopped a tax collector from charging far more than he actually owed the Romans. And if you balked at it and you couldn't pay it, he'd say, well, do you want me to bring the Roman soldiers and take your farm or your son or your daughter? And so tax collectors got absurdly wealthy quickly on the backs of their fellow Jews because they were basically traitors. And they were reviled and hated and scorned. They were an outcast to society. A rich outcast, but an outcast. Now, there's a fourth group of people. They didn't give up like those, you know, profligate sinners. They didn't cozy up to the Romans like the Sadducees or the tax collectors. They wanted the Romans expelled from the country and they would do whatever it took to do it. These people were called zealots. And they would live on the margins of society. They would stage raids on various Roman groups. They would try to find patrols and pick them off. They would try to do incidents of almost domestic terrorism. Anything they could to destabilize things and get the hated Romans kicked out of Judah. And so the zealots today would be a militia running around somewhere planning what plotting what acts it could take to destabilize a society. And then there's everybody else. People are like, look, I don't want to give up like the people who are just drinking themselves into oblivion. Those zealots running around in the wilderness trying to attack Romans just make me real nervous. And, but I'm not one of these civic leaders who's got kind of control, and I sure don't want to be one of those tax collectors. And this final group instead wanted just to be a basic middle-of-the-road, middle-class or upper-middle-class 
believer in Yahweh who read their Bible carefully, studied it thoroughly, and wanted to live the way God wanted them to live. They weren't quite so radical as those zealots. They weren't quite so accommodating as those Sadducees and tax collectors. They weren't quite so sinful as those other people. They were just good, solid bedrock of society. Any other name for that group? Pharisees. And here's the point. When we read the Bible and read the Gospels, we always hear Jesus versus the Pharisees, Jesus versus the Pharisees. So it's really easy to think they rolled around on black, with black hats on and big curly mustaches like the villain in some vaudeville troupe. But that's not what a Pharisee was in their world. To them, Pharisees were the good, solid, respectable people. Even if you didn't have the moral fortitude yourself to be one of the Pharisees, you usually kind of wished you did. Because the Pharisees were the bedrock that made that country great. You had these groups. And in a crowd, you would have had all the groups. Which group do you think Jesus is talking to in Matthew 11? Well, there's a little hint in verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus says, Son of man came, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you survey the Gospels, there's one of these groups that's really saying that. You see it in Luke 7, for instance, in verse 36. The people who say that to Jesus are the Pharisees. They're the ones who say, we don't like your song. What was their song? The Pharisees' song went kind of like this. God loves people who clean up their act and keep the rules and do what God told them to do. So if you want to be right with God, he's given you the rule book, get to work. That's how you earn his love. Now understand, Pharisees would admit that they were sinners in an intellectual sense. But in a basic heart orientation, what they said is, We've kept the rules, so God's happy with us. And since God's happy with us, let's make sure, very sure we don't get around other people who break the rules because they might rub off on us. That's a Pharisee's song. And Jesus says, it's childish. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is quite obviously this, or quite simply this. There are many people today who are still singing the Pharisee's song. Now, that's the basic song at the essence of Mormonism, for instance. It's the basic song at the essence of many world religions. And all too often, Christianity gets twisted into exactly that song. But Jesus makes it clear it's not his song. That's not the song he brings. So look at verse 19. Jesus comes into that and he says, I sing a different song. It's really implicit and it's really simple. Jesus' song is this, I hang out with sinners and tax collectors. I spend time with the worst, with the ones shunned by all of society, with the ones who are doing bad things. Jesus is a friend to sinners. That's his song. And no, he doesn't actually make them get their act together first. He just comes in and he goes to their houses and he joins their parties And he spends time with them and he talks with them. Our Lord spent a large portion of his earthly life hanging out with people who were doing most of their lives really bad things. And Jesus says, that's the song I sing. And the application here couldn't be more obvious. The scripture says we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. Meaning that ought to be our song too. That we are friends with sinners. 
Now, interesting, I am, along with Paul Chelson, who's a member here, he and I are two of the members of the board of a group called Christianity Explored North America. And this is a ministry we run here. It's run at a lot of churches. It started over in England, and our ministry is to take it and help it expand in the North American area. And so trying to be a good board member, I've done everything I can to read up and learn and understand everything about evangelism and sharing Christianity with people. And one of the things I've learned is this. If you tell Christians to bring their non-Christian friends to something, it almost always fails. You know, want to know why? Because they don't have any. Sure, they've got plenty of non-Christian acquaintances, but they don't actually have any non-Christian friends. How does that happen? I mean, it's certainly at the moment they become Christians, they've got plenty of non-Christian friends. It's all their friends. But the way it happens is typically something like this. Much of it, in fact, being good instincts gone bad. Somebody's become a believer, and he or she naturally and biblically appropriately wants to be around other people who share their faith. Fellowship is a great biblical value. And so they bring in a new friend group, people who are Christians, and they spend time with them. And there even at times is the need to separate from certain influences in our past. There might be a friend or two who particularly dragged you down back into sin in ways that you say, I just can't continue this relationship. <clears throat> but in the process of doing that, it's not a couple friends that get jettisoned. Within about the first two years, they've switched out their friend group entirely. And they now no longer have any friends who are really not Christians. The application is really simple then. If you're a new Christian, don't lose your non-Christian friends. And if you've been a Christian for a long time and you don't have any non-Christian friends, get some. You know, whatever you do, go running with people. Go to happy hour with people. Play music together with them. Go to a show. Go to a festival. Read a book and talk about it. Whatever you normally do to be friends with somebody, make sure you're doing it with Christians for sure because you need fellowship, but also with non-Christians. It's Jesus' song, and it's really simple. Now, here's the question, though. Why couldn't the religious leaders of Jesus' day sing that song? Doesn't seem that hard, does it? Why couldn't they sing the song? The reason they couldn't sing that song is because they had ignored John's song. So look at verse 18. There's a third song implicit in this passage. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they scorned him. They said, he's got a demon. Well, which John? You know, there are lots of Johns in your Bible. Which one are we talking about? If you look earlier in Matthew 11, it's quite obvious we're talking about John the Baptist. And Jesus is giving opinion and sort of giving commentary on the ministry of John the Baptist. So what was John the Baptist's ministry? Well, when John came, you've got to understand, it's, it's a little understandable why they said, dude, this guy's crazy, he's got a demon. Because he was a little odd. His clothes were all made of camel hair. He ate locusts and honey for his food. He lived out in the desert. And he preached, Matthew 3 says, if you flip back a few chapters, a gospel of repentance. I'll read you Matthew 3, 1 to 6. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. 
Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. What does that mean? Repentance means acknowledging that we're broken people. Acknowledging that we're messed up people. Acknowledging that we are not as we ought to be. And even if you look down at verse 10, acknowledging that that puts us in a precarious situation with God. And a repentance is a definitive turning away from that and leaving it behind. It is a different life. And the point is this then, the application of this piece, is that we leave sin. So understand, being a friend to sinners is different than being a friend to sin. It's different than embracing sin. We are and should be the quickest to be friends with people who are doing the worst things out there. But as Christians, we also hear John's song, and it says we leave sin. We hate sin. We recognize exactly how bad it is for us, for others, for our world. The Christian is the quickest person to say, I'm going to lay down my sin and change and not be that way. There is a leaving of sin in our faith. And it means very practically, when you're at the party and somebody lights up a bong, you leave. When somebody gets in the car drunk to drive, you don't get in the passenger seat with them. When there's an abusive situation, you don't just countenance and let it keep going. We leave sin. We don't embrace it, even in the name of friendship. Um, When I was in high school, I remember one of my friends who were going to be going to college. I'd been a Christian for almost three years. I'm going to change her name, but I remember her saying to me, well, you know what? When I get to college, I'm pretty sure that I'm just going to drink and party and do anything anybody else would do because I want to be a good friend to all the non-Christians around me. And even then, I remember thinking and saying to her, Jamie, that just sounds a whole lot more like rationalization than it sounds like care for people around you. You sure you don't just want to sin? That's not who we are. We hear John's message and we leave sin. Now, how does this work then? Wouldn't the Pharisees have loved that? Isn't that exactly what they were arguing for? How does this all fit together? It fits together when we realize that Jesus' song and John's song are the same song. Look again at Matthew 11. Look what Jesus is doing earlier in the chapter. He's talking about how important John the Baptist is and how right John the Baptist was. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says John is spot on. And what this means is Jesus never condones sin. Our Lord never says, hey, sin's okay. He recognizes what sin is and how destructive and horrible it is. The Christian is the furthest from the relativist. The furthest from someone who will just let it go by. But Jesus still remains a friend for sinners. Why couldn't the Pharisees? The Pharisees couldn't Because they couldn't hear John's song. If you look back at Matthew 3, they come out to the Jordan to watch the show and John throws it right back at them. And he says, you all try to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The Pharisees weren't willing to be around those sinners because they were pretty sure that they weren't sinners. Not in any real practical way. They wouldn't be around those people because they couldn't recognize that they were those people. John's song is really verse 1 of Jesus' song. It's the dirge. It's the bad news. It's the funeral. 
We sin. All of us. Including you guys and me. And we clean up and we look a lot like Pharisees. And then verse 2 is the great news of the gospel, which is Jesus loves to hang out with sinners. So which verse of Jesus' song do you need to hear? John's verse, that you're a sinner? Or Jesus' verse, that we hang out with sinners? How would we do that? How would we get to where we would hang out with people who honestly, the night before, were doing terrible things? Because we realize Jesus hangs out with us. That he's a friend for sinners. So could we go and do the same? Let's pray. God, please meet with us in our need to understand what you would have for us. Help us to know the gospel, to live the way you would have us live, to bring good news to the world. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you have befriended sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.